Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start, we want to tell you about New Scientist's autumn campaign offer, which is also known as the fall offer, depending on where you're listening. Yes, the offer is you get 12 weeks of unlimited access to all New Scientist articles and the whole archive on newscientist.com for £13.75 or the equivalent currency wherever you are. What an absolute bargain. And to get this, go to newscientist.com slash pod13 and sign up. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim here is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by New Scientist journalists Matthew Sparks and Madeline Cuff. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. We've got loads coming up this week, including a fascinating discussion about climate change and mental health. And for that, I spoke with author Lucy Jones and an energy and climate scientist, Geisha Hubner. We're also hearing about how DeepMind has discovered a new way to multiply numbers and we're discussing the merits, or absolute lack of merits, of (laughs) advertising in space. And on top of all that, we've got very important penguin news in our our Lifeform of the Week segment. That's all to come, but we're going to start with a report from the World Meteorological Organisation that says that energy security threat from climate change is so serious it rivals the threat from Russian aggression. Maddie, you've been reporting this. So what's the new thing here? Yeah. Hi, Rowan. So um, we all know by now that Russia has thrown global energy markets into turmoil by squeezing gas supplies into Europe. But what you might not know is there's another major threat to energy security that's currently flying under the radar, and that's climate change. So this year, hurricanes, heat waves, and flooding have caused power blackouts in countries around the world. Last month, Cuba's power grid was completely knocked out by Hurricane Ian. The World Meteorological Organization, they're the weather experts, uh, says the threat to energy security from extreme weather is on the same level as the short-term threat posed by Russian aggression. And it's calling for countries to invest more to make sure that their energy systems are climate resilient. Okay, so like you say, it's been under the radar a bit. We have heard about the threat of climate change, but normally we think of it, you know, in 2030 or 2050 or something. But the WMO now has upped its game, hasn't it? So... Why has it done that? Is that? What sort of threats are they warning about? Yeah, what the WMO makes clear is that this is a threat that is having an impact right now. So this isn't something that's going to happen in the future. And we've seen throughout this year that extreme weather like wind and rain can knock out power lines and damage equipment, causing blackouts. But heat waves can also cause spikes in power demand as people switch on their aircon, which grids in the summertime are not generally set up to cope with. Water scarcity is also a real issue, particularly for nuclear plants, because they need cool water to help cool their reactors. And in the France this summer, during the lengthy European heatwave, river levels dropped so low that the remaining water in the river was too warm to use for nuclear cooling. That forced France to roll back some of the energy it was producing from nuclear. So I guess, I, obviously, in an ideal world, we would have started trying to prevent this about 30 years ago. But is there, is there anything we can do now that would start having benefits soon? 
Yeah, you're right, Penny, that the, the first thing to do is to try and prevent this problem from arising in the first place. So that means you can, for example, build your nuclear reactors in areas where they aren't vulnerable to droughts or rising sea levels. Or you can do smart things like texting households during heat waves to make sure that people conserve energy and don't overload the grid. But what's also key is how quickly systems can get back up and running after extreme weather hits. So you might remember Storm Arwen that hit the UK in November 2021, and that left thousands of people across the country without power for more than a week, which was far longer than how long they should have been without power, according to Ofgem. So it's about how quickly you can kind of get power lines back up and running after a storm hits. Mm, It feels really ominous, doesn't it? Um, With this WMO report, it's coming out in the same week we heard from the National Grid electricity system operator that there could be blackouts on the UK grid if if gas supplies are disrupted. But we've also been hearing from the government, there's a real reluctance to do those things, like you were saying, you know, texting households or telling people when and how to use their energy. It seems to have become a slightly political issue that... um people are kind of unwilling to push renewables. But I mean, what is clear is that if we're going to avert dramatic climate change, and also just to meet our own domestic climate goals, then we need to roll out more renewables as fast as possible. So that means yes, lots more offshore wind, but also onshore wind, and solar, and tidal, and whatever other renewable technology we can get our hands on, really. Yeah, and which is why the government is, well, tearing itself apart, really, about this crazy idea not to let farmers put solar on their land. So let's see what happens there. Next up, it's the return of the sci-fi alert, where we discuss a story in the news that's already been in science fiction. And this week is advertising in space. Penny, what are your feelings about this, I wonder? <laughs> well, you, you might guess that I'm not not especially happy about it, Rowan. Mm. Um, this is the horrendous idea that constellations of satellites could reflect light in formation to essentially light up company logos or basic images in the sky. And I'm really not happy about it. <laughs> no, I, I'm not happy about it either, actually. I think mm. we agree with each other here. Is this a new idea, though? I mean, is anyone doing it now? It is an idea that's kind of feels familiar and has been sort of posited for ages. And unfortunately, mm. no one's doing it yet. But a new study that our reporter Alex Wilkins wrote about for us this week, it suggests that the practice or the idea is now becoming commercially viable. So the team behind this work, they calculated that basically thanks to private space companies bringing down the costs of satellite launches, it might now be possible to create a space advert for $65 million, which is within the realms of commercial feasibility. Wow, it's still quite expensive, but still you could expensive. see well, you could see a massive multinational affording that. Um, well, if you think about you know the Super Bowls and the really big, yeah. expensive advertising events in the world, it's yeah. not completely unbelievable. Um, so what? How would it work? Oh, <laughs> so the team proposed that a fleet of about fifty satellites equipped with curved reflectors could orbit around the sort of line or boundary where night turns into day. And in that position, they could reflect the sun's light, each sort of acting like a bright pixel, and reflect that to a particular patch of ground below. So if you were standing in that spot, what you'd see is an ad move across the sky during a period of about 10 minutes around dawn or dusk. And at its peak, it could appear three times bigger than the moon. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So you could have like uh, uh, the McDonald's logo saying, we're loving it. 
going yeah, across for the example, sky yeah. while you're trying to enjoy a sunrise potentially yeah, um lovely. obviously well, we should probably say we have no knowledge that they've expressed an interest in doing that but um yeah companies could be exploring it and I guess lots of uh, professional astronomers as well are very upset about this. Yeah, there are considerable practical problems, as you might imagine. Uh, one is that satellites that do this would ultimately r- run out of fuel, of course, and then they'd slowly fall to Earth. So that causes all kinds of problems, potentially with space junk and damaging other satellites that are actually important and that kind of thing. And then, of course, the light reflected uh, by these space ads could also be a huge problem. It could interfere with telescopes on the ground and in space, including ones that are involved in asteroid monitoring systems, so pretty important. Mm. And of course, we already know that astronomers are already really upset about the effect that SpaceX's Starlink satellites are having on the night sky. Yeah, actually, I was in a patch of of dark sky the other Mm. day, and I saw, I could see the Milky Way, it was lovely, I was just enjoying that. And then I saw the Starlinks go across, I'd never seen them before, but 80 in a line. Just go, go go over. It was an incredible thing. It is to see. remarkable, isn't it? And it's yeah. unlike anything else you've ever seen. Yeah. 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 So we obviously we we don't want this to happen, really, do we? No. Um. And you know, obviously there are all these really practical and sensible reasons, but I think also it's worth giving a bit of thought to the sort of moral and philosophical perspectives of you know really. Don't we have a right to look up at the sky during dawn and dusk and not have ads beamed into our eyes? Um, We're so used to planes and satellites whizzing over and ads everywhere. But surely some some things must still be sacred. It's nothing sacred. (laughs) I know. I I couldn't agree more. I was just reading something by um, Kate Raworth, actually, the economist, donut economist woman, on how the, the whole public relations industry was created in the 30s, 1930s. And then, you know, the advertising industry grew up around that. And, and, and she describes how consumerism, basically, we got locked into that. And that's why we're in this mess now. Yeah, and it's very normal now. We, you know, we all expect to see ads plastered all over our public transport and public spaces and that kind of thing. But I, I really hope it doesn't make it into the actual sky. Anyway, what's the sci-fi link here? So there's uh, an American short story writer called Frederick Brown. I don't know if anyone's heard of him, but no. he's, a, he's an absolute legend. He writes these brilliantly crafted little stories, only like one, two or three pages long. And one of those is called Pie in the Sky. And in that, an inventor arranges the... Uh, rearranges the apparent positions of the stars to to form a logo, an advertising logo. Very apt. Let's take a quick break to hear a message from Dow. You might be surprised to learn that most plastic waste ends up in landfill or is incinerated. Just 14% is recycled and then into a lower quality material. And that's set to change thanks to an innovative recycling technology that makes plastic manufacture circular. So plastic waste becomes the feedstock for the virgin product. To find out more about the coming plastics revolution, visit newscientist.com slash DAO. We also must tell you about an upcoming online event with space legend Sean Carroll. (laughs) Where, when and how? These are some of the most fundamental questions we can ask and knowledge of space, time and motion has been central to the biggest discoveries in physics. And that's what Sean will be talking about. Sean is just a brilliant speaker and you can see him as part of our Big Thinker series on October the 20th online at 6pm and then anytime you want on demand. Go to newscientist.com slash space and motion to find out more and sign up. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's time for Life Form of the Week. And for that, Rowan caught up with our Australia reporter, Alice Klein. Alice, before we talk about penguins, let's talk about floods because your town has been flooded in the recent rains, hasn't it? How's it going now? Yeah, there was um, a lot of rain over the weekend, more rain than I think I've ever experienced. Um, Wow. And then the sun came out on Sunday and uh, I went for a drive and most of our town was underwater, which was uh, not good. But um, yeah, it, it has flooded quite a lot along the east coast of Australia this year. So it's starting to become the new normal, I think. Yeah. And this comes actually as you've just done a story for us showing that Sydney at least had its wettest ever year, even with what, how many days left have we got the year to go? And it's already, you know, broken the record. I know the record was broken on the 6th of October. So still with about a quarter of the year to go. Um, Yeah. So Sydney's had over two metres of rain so far this year, which is quite a lot. I think normally there's only about one metre of rain. Wow. Okay, let's talk about penguins, though. Our life form of the week this week is the erect crested penguin. So it's a really beautiful looking animal. Uh, It's got these yellow feathers sticking up from its head. Uh, It's also the least studied penguin in the world, I've discovered, because it lives on these really remote islands between New Zealand and Antarctica. And the last study of these or the last proper real study of these penguins was like a quarter of a century ago in in 1998 and that found something really strange didn't it so the females lay two eggs but five days apart and they kind of ignore the first one and it doesn't hatch and they only seem to care about the second one so Alice what is going on with these two why not why don't they just have one egg and look after that one Yeah, it does seem like a weird waste of energy. And this phenomenon has really flummoxed biologists for a long time now. One idea was that it might be a kind of insurance policy in case one of the eggs gets broken, for example, if there were males fighting in the vicinity or something. But the the research team that looked at these penguins in 1998, they found that fighting was actually pretty uncommon in these birds. And they also found that about 80% of the first eggs had actually already been lost by the time the second one was laid, either because they'd rolled away or they'd been deliberately pecked away or broken by their parents. So that didn't really seem to fit with this idea that they would be serving some kind of insurance function. Yeah. So any more ideas on what's going on now? Well, we don't know for sure, but um, the researchers think that these penguins may have inherited a reproductive strategy from their ancestors that involved having two eggs. But then because they live in this really, really remote area, um, which is a long way from any food, they don't actually have enough resources to rear two chicks. So 
they're still having two eggs, but they have to choose only one of them to rear. Right. And, you know, there may be some kind of evolutionary mechanism that we don't yet understand that means the second egg has a greater chance of survival. So they focus on that one. But they still have to have the first one, even though it's seemingly redundant. And interestingly, the first egg that they lay is much, much smaller than the second one. It's actually about 85% lighter. And if you see pictures of the two side by side, there's a really big difference between the two. So it's like they've adapted to this conundrum by going, well, okay, we still have to have this first egg, but we'll just devote as little energy to its production as possible because it's going to be discarded anyway. So apart from that, apart from this weird first egg rejection thing, uh, is there anything else weird about or unusual about these birds? Yeah, a few things. One is that they have far less sex than other penguins, only about <laughs> once every 30 hours compared to every three hours in other penguin species. Oh, I didn't know penguins were renowned for their sexual <laughs> yeah, prowess. every three hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, apparently they just kind of stand around looking disinterested in the whole affair. Um, So that's interesting. Another is that they rarely build nests for their eggs. You know, other penguins will fashion nests out of grasses or twigs or stones or whatever they can find. But these guys pretty much just plop their eggs onto bare rock. They are fascinating animals, aren't they? Um, So no one's gone back to really study them in depth since 1998. Is that because they are just so isolated out there? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's just really hard to get to them. So this research team that went in 1998, it took them three and a half days to get there by boat. And when they got there, there's no real landing spot because the islands are surrounded by these massive cliffs. So they had to jump wow. off the boat into the surf with all their gear and then drag it up these 60-metre cliffs. And another thing is that New Zealand's Department of Conservation has got all these other animals to worry about that are being directly threatened by human activity. So it seems like they kind of assumed that these penguins were safe and sound in this pristine remote location. So they haven't really made them a research priority. And are they safe and sound out there? This sounds like they're nicely isolated. Mm, Yeah, you'd think that. But actually, some other researchers went there in 2014 just to do a basic nest count. And they found that the population has probably actually declined by about a third since the 1998 study. And no one really knows why, but it may be because climate change is affecting the availability of their food. But considering that this is such a beautiful and bizarre bird, it would be really great if more research could be done to try to understand in case it's not around one day. Yeah, for sure. Um, It is beautiful. We'll post a picture on that in the show notes. Thanks, Alice. Now, Matt, you're in the pod, and often that means there's something weird going on with AI. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about DeepMind again, are we? Yeah, DeepMind's been on a bit of a tear recently. They've uh, they've basically solved protein folding. They've uh, worked out a new way to contain plasma in fusion reactors, and they they've even got an AI now that can program computers automatically. So. What they've done now is they've found a new way to multiply numbers, which is the first leap forward in that area for 50 years. And uh, what they're saying is that this could boost computation speeds kind of across the board by up to 20%. Yeah. I, I cannot get my head around this because how can there be a new way to multiply? Surely we're not just talking about, um, you know, one number times one number. It's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, we're, we're talking about matrix multiplication where you you multiply two grids of numbers together. It's actually a really common fundamental computing task it's used in almost all software to some extent but it's really 
kind of the basis of graphics and AI and a lot of uh, scientific simulations as well. So um, until this advance, how have we been doing it? What's the best way of doing this kind of maths? Well, for centuries, it was thought that the most efficient way of multiplying two matrices would be proportional to the number of elements being multiplied. So if you had a matrix of two rows of two numbers, so four numbers in total, and you wanted to multiply a pair of those together, it would take eight multiplications. But then uh, Volker Strassen came along in 1969, and he found that there, there was actually a shortcut, and you can actually reduce that. You can do some additional addition and take out one of the multiplications, which was a bit of a surprise. And that algorithm, Strassen's algorithm, that stood as the most efficient way to do this for for more than 50 years now. Uh, There's been some very slight improvements that aren't easily adapted to computers. But aside from that, 50 years standing. Now, DeepMind, they've come along, they've beaten that algorithm for some sizes of matrix. So if you're multiplying two matrices of four rows of four numbers, that would normally take... 49 multiplications under Strassen's algorithm, and they've knocked that down to 47, which is a you know, significant chunk off. And they've also improved techniques for other sizes of matrix as well, 70 different sizes in total. And how does it find this way of doing it? Because, you know, I can understand how it learns to play chess, you know, how their AIs learn those sorts of things. How does it learn to find these new ways of multiplying? This new algorithm, which finds uh, al- algorithms, called Alpha Tensor, it's based on Alpha Zero, which was the chess and, and yeah. Go algorithm. Basically, it's kind of, although algorithms are harder to find because, you know, any any move in chess is valid. It might not be the best one, but no piece of code is a working algorithm. So it's much harder to find those. But it, it goes about it in the same way, and it's sort of tasked to find algorithms with the minimum number of steps, and it goes away, and it does its sort of mysterious AI thing. Um <laughs> it did discover thousands of functional algorithms. So if, you, if you're looking at four by four matrices, it actually found 14,000 algorithms that would work, wow. obviously not all better. So the, you know the, the, they've come up with an optimum or what we think is an optimum at the moment. But no one really knows how it, how it works. Even, even DeepMind admits that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing that I think is really actually pretty cool because you know, like we don't know how the brain works to make consciousness and then when you when deep mind admits things like this we don't know we don't know how our ais work i think there's a kind of similarity to i i guess only by analogy you know we don't know how the brain works but we get consciousness and i think we might end up getting a a computer to simulate consciousness without really knowing what it's doing yeah there's there's kind of two schools of thought on that at the moment because as we increase the scale of ai new functions sort of crop up so you Mm. you might have an ai that's designed to mimic english language and you find that oh it can actually do basic maths or it can translate into spanish and you know it wasn't supposed to be able to do that so perhaps if we increase scale we'll we'll get intelligence so um it sounds really impressive sort of um, shaving off a few more multiplications off of this long-standing algorithm but What's the sort of practical implications of that? Does it help speed up computers? So we we might see just a speed up across the board of, you know, a very small amount of percent or two and just in everyday software. But I think the the real benefit here is going to be big data processing, AI, scientific simulations, that sort of thing. DeepMind ran some tests and they, they saw boosts of sort of 10 to 20% on certain hardware, quite 
specific hardware like the graphics uh, chips, which are often used to run AI and a special custom Google chip, which they use for various things. But there's no guarantee that sort of the gains you see on smartphones or laptops are going to be the same as that. So it was World Mental Health Day on Monday, and I wanted to use that as a peg to talk about the effect of the climate crisis and the crisis in nature on mental health. For me, it's definitely something I feel a lot of anxiety around, and I know other people do, a lot of other people do. So to discuss this, I'm really happy today to be joined by the writer Lucy Jones, who's the author of a wonderful best-selling book called Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild, and Geisha Hubner of University College London's Energy Institute. And Geisha also works on the links between climate change and mental health. So welcome both. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Now, look, for anyone listening who might quite reasonably think that regular physical health problems are really what we should be thinking about when it comes to climate change, you know, because we've got disease and heat waves and all stuff like that. Can we start with that, Geisha? You know, what are the links between climate change and mental health and what aspects of mental health are we talking about? Thanks for this. So there are quite quite a number of ways how climate change is impacting mental health and we only slowly start to understand those better. So we have quite good evidence that heat waves and hot temperatures impact negatively on mental health. So we see an increase in suicide rates. We see an increase in hospital admissions, psychiatric units. We also see greater violence, which in turn impacts on mental health. We know that flooding or huge storms impact on mental health, for example, by causing post-traumatic stress disorder. But really anything in any way that climate change can impact on our economic situation, for example, us losing our job, our livelihood being destroyed, can again in turn impact on our mental health. So it's a lot about those kind of consequences of climate change that impact negatively on mental health. But we can also take a step further and look at the drivers of climate change. So for example, the burning of fossil fuels leads to air pollution. And there's quite some evidence now that also air pollution impacts negatively on mental health. So there's a number of pathways really how climate change impacts mental health. It's just that until really recently, maybe two, three, four years ago, we haven't really thought much about those. And it's only really this year that the discussion is kicking off around how climate change impacts on our mental health. And Lucy, you've written a lot about this as well, haven't you? Um, what's your feelings about how how we need nature and how ecological grief affects our lives? Well, our disconnection from the natural world, our estrangement from it in terms of the time we spend outside which is between one and five percent for people living in industrialized nations it's unprecedented we've never been at this point of disconnection and I think within that we are overlooking and forgetting how much we need the natural world for our health and happiness and I when I started researching this area for my book I was a bit skeptical I would kind of think well being outside is nice, you know, being in the park on the weekend is, is good, going to the seaside for a, your holiday is, is kind of relaxing, mm. but is there actually any kind of robust evidence that suggests that a restorative natural environment actually really affects our, our physical health, our mental health? And, and actually, I, I was really blown away by the quality of the evidence and, and, and how varied it was and how scientists in disciplines across the world and every continent of the world 
really in the last kind of 10, 20 years, are trying to drill down into this relationship between the human body, the human mind and restorative natural environments and finding out really, I think, exciting, compelling and worrying, worrying things really that suggest that our alienation, our eco-alienation is actually really dangerous for our for our health, for public health and individual health. Yeah, um, it's funny, isn't it, that you say, you know, there, there has been a lot of research on this, but it's still only just really being talked about, isn't it? And even the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they only mentioned mental health this year, wasn't it, Geisha? Yes, so they had in the report this year for the first time. And also the WHO, so the World Health Organization, they this yeah. year for the first time brought out this policy brief around climate change and mental health. And it's, I mean, it's a bit of a good question why it took us so long to get there, because I think kind of intuitively might have known for much longer that climate change impacts on mental health. And we know it's, you know, it's, it's a huge threat. It kind of destroys the way we live, um, potentially the way we work. So I wonder why it has taken so long to get to the agenda. And I think part of that is because in general, we tend to focus more on physical health. So even mm. if you look at like how general research is distributed between physical and mental health, there's much more focus on physical health, even though, though I think we're committed to parity between mental and physical health. I don't think in reality we actually do that. So mental health is always it's still more stigmatized. It's something we talk less about. It's something that is just not as much in the focus. I'm very aware when we're talking about this of being in a nice house in London. And, you know, we have the privilege of being able to do something about it. You know, like we can go on holiday, we can go out and we can sort of relax in nature and we're not really at the moment really exposed to real harsh realities of climate change but if you think about someone in Pakistan recently or in Bangladesh or you know on a Pacific island with the the sea literally lapping up into their houses you know it's worse there isn't it what how how do we address that sort of problem i mean what's it like in those countries I mean, I think that's a huge question. In a way, I think, you know, I don't want to answer on behalf of other countries because obviously that's that's not my lived reality and I don't want to be mm. um, condescending here and say, well, this is what we should do. But I do think that generally we need to strengthen healthcare infrastructure in all countries and also ensure that we build a mental health capacity in those healthcare systems. And we know that there are many countries around the world that still have inadequate health systems where people don't have access to healthcare. And I think what then happens if you have an emergency such as huge flooding, it's very hard to then, for example, react to any of the mental health consequences if something you don't have any kind of infrastructure for or right. even the infrastructure that you have might end up getting destroyed. And I also think if maybe we build better healthcare systems that have a focus on mental health, we might also be able to increase the general resilience of the population and hopefully better prepare to deal with any disasters. That was author Lucy Jones and it was also Geisha Hubner of University College London. And thanks to both of them for joining me. Uh, you can hear the full interview with Lucy and Geisha in a special edition of the podcast that will go out on Tuesday. And there's loads of stuff there that we didn't have time for in this episode. So do give it a listen. And if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, you won't miss out. I should also say that if you need someone to talk to about mental health issues, there is help available and we'll put a link to some resources in the show notes. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests in the pod, Matt Sparks and Madeline Cuff. And thanks to you for listening. Do tell everyone about our show and subscribe so you don't miss out. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Thank you.